Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local, amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank, I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc. Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facility to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform, just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And I am really excited about today's podcast because, you know, I actually think that these interviews are my favorite for two reasons. I think the first reason is they're so up to date and relevant mm -hmm. for right now. Like yep. it's, it's, this isn't, we're talking about the past on it. We're talking about now today 
And the second reason is these are real success stories right. from people that are coming in, doing it themselves, that didn't have background or anything else. I just think that's so applicable for everybody. Oh, it's it's huge because that's really the the heart and soul of a lot of our, our listeners as they're just getting started in the yeah. industry or they're seasoned veterans with, you know, a couple facilities. They're looking to grow their portfolios, whatever that is. And our guest today, Chris Lawrence, um, I mean, we were just talking before the podcast yep listened to the podcast like six months ago, whatever it was, and uh, is is now a self-storage owner and now hanging out with us on the podcast. It's freaking awesome, man. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, welcome, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Excited to share the story and hopefully add some value to your listeners. So, Heck yeah. Well, and you know, we've talked about, we t- talked a little bit uh, before, you're in New York. Um, uh, and so you're in Rochester, right? And uh, are you originally from there? Is that you kind of born and raised? Yep. Yeah. Born and raised in Rochester, New York. Okay. Awesome. And did you get, when you were getting into starting to even think about investing, because correct me if I'm wrong here, you're talking like six months ago, you didn't know anything about storage. So <laughs> why the heck, like I always ask this to people, why storage? Were you already in other real estate asset classes or what was it? Yeah, yeah. So just to give you some like full context, so from like 2010 to 2020, I was in sales uh, full time, and then started dabbling in in uh, you know residential flipping, wholesaling, um, you know that that sort of stuff uh, part time. And then in 2020, I, I left my sales job and went full time into you know flipping, you know acquiring rentals, that sort of stuff. And then uh, kind of hit had an aha moment when I hit like a home run deal on a, on a single family burr, you know, bought yeah. for 100, put 40 into it, did a refi at 80 to 100,000 in equity. You know, and this was like a home run. I'm like, shoot, I, don't, I need about 20 or 30 more of these. And it just kind of dawned on me the economies of scale is just you can make good money doing that. But for me, for my lifestyle, it just wasn't going to be a match, you know. You know, frankly, it was more stress doing that than my sales job. So I'm like, I got to find an asset class that I can scale quickly and uh, have that, you know, quote unquote, passive income. And, uh, you know, my dad, you know, growing up, one of his best friends had storage. So I was exposed to it at a young age. And then, um, you know, just through listening to your podcast, Bigger Pockets, that sort of stuff, I was exposed to self-storage. And it always seemed pretty um, simplistic in in terms of like, you can automate a lot of things, uh, leverage technology and that sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. And so I kind of went all in and, and storage and started learning as much as I could. And like I said, six, seven months ago, I had no clue about self-storage, cap rates, none of that stuff. So I was just digesting yeah. this information, learning. And yeah, so grateful for what you guys do. It's Dude, awesome. Okay. First of all, it, you know, obviously your story resonates with me because it's like I'm hearing my own story, right? It was like sales guy doing stuff, started investing in all sorts of other assets. I don't think people understand how many like side businesses and assets that I invested in it was more like all over the board. I'm like, I'm trying to get things done. I'm going with CPAs. What if we bought 10 houses and did this way, right? What if I did land? I went and took courses on like land holds and flipping. Like I was looking, but, and I came to the same realization, what you just said, this isn't going to get me to where I need or where I'm trying to go. And every path that I either started down, I went investing oil. I did that, right? It was just like, oh, this just isn't going to get me to that end goal. And that's why I went in just like you to storage because I'm like, oh, I can. And, and I talk a lot about when you scale, there's two sides of scale, as you know, because you're talking single family owned commercial. There's volume, right? And then there's magnitude. So one off big ones, right? But 
in storage and a lot of commercial real estate assets, you can do both of them. So I can have lots of assets, but my first deal may be a million, 500,000, a million, right? And then it can go all the way up to 40, 50, 100 million. So you're getting lots of assets, but the size of them are growing. And that scale just rockets you. So I, I, I totally get that frustration and where you were at. And, uh, you know, it's, now, tell me about your sales job. Hold on. First, we got to go back to the sales job. I got to get back to the story because I'm really, what did you do for sales? Yeah. So this is probably the only one on your podcast. So I sold uh, school buses for 10 years uh, in Western New York. <laughs> Wait, you reached out to my wife. Huh? You reached out when we needed a school bus. Was that you on Instagram that said, Hey, AJ, I'm, I'm in New York and I actually think that I got one or I know somebody if you need to help. Is that you maybe, or was that somebody else? Recall, maybe, but maybe there's another. <laughs> it, uh, it, it was like crazy. nine. It was like it yeah. was like I don't know five months ago. It was it was the summer, but she owns a school, right? And she's like, oh, okay. there was problems with the city, and they needed a bus. They didn't have a bus system, and they needed one. And she's like, where am I going to get a bus? So I put it on Instagram. <laughs> somebody from New York said, hey, I actually know where you can find buses. Let me know if you needed it. And luckily, we had a local person that gave us one. But that's so funny. What yeah, are the odds? School buses. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah, and now funny. you did that all over the nation, uh, j just Western New York. Just so Western I had a, a territory in, in Western New York. Yep. I had like you know eight counties and and did that. So yeah, I did it for ten years. And did you work like uh, was it more like business accounts and business sales? Like you worked with school districts, or did, yeah, was it, it one offs? Yeah, like school districts. So I had like a, a book of business and school districts I called on. So you're working with the business managers, the head mechanics, yep. uh, you know, transportation directors, that sort of thing. Yep. So in, uh, that was actually, I know it's school buses and I was insurance, but it was the same. I had a book of business, right? We had the individual clients that we would service, which would buy array of products or, or, or multiple things, which, I mean, I, it's interesting talking to you because like, it's not that it's bad, right? You didn't have a bad gig. So yeah. it, it's not like, wow, I was really struggling. It, no, it, it's not that I was even like, I got to get out of this. I hate my life. This and, No, it wasn't that at all. Um, which, what was it for you? Why? You had a good job. I mean, why? Why take the risk? Yeah, like I, I guess, um, I, you know, so I had the, the golden handcuffs, right? I had the sales yes. job. I had somewhat autonomy. I had the company vehicle, the gas card. But at the end of the day, I just had you know, like a fire burning in my belly. I just didn't feel fulfilled. I'm like, I'm, at the time I was 27, 28. I'm like, I, I, this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I'm like, this is just kind of boring. You know, I've kind of a, achieved the level what I wanted and got to the mountaintop. And I'm like, this isn't exactly what I wanted. So I um, was like, man, I, I think the bigger risk would be to look back and be like, man, I wish I would have done real estate investing full time or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and at the time, my, my wife was still working her full time job. Um, we didn't have a kid. Now we, you know, fast forward, my wife's a stay at home mom. Um, we have a five month old baby. Um, so it was like, that was the time to take the leap of faith and to jump into it. And at that point I had a, you know, proof of concept of like, man, I can flip a house, make 20, 30, 40 grand, you know? And then once I got into it, you know, I had two, three projects going on, four projects going on at once. I'm like, man, I'm way more stressed out than when I was with my sales making the same money. Um, but I have less time. You know, and the reasons I left were to have more time with family, more income, be able to travel and, and that sort of stuff. And I just, yeah, it didn't, and like, I got to, you know, I was, frankly, I was probably two to three months away from going back to a sales job, as I mentioned, because uh, I didn't want to continue down this, the path of flipping and, and, you know, wholesaling at the level I needed to, to, to sustain a lifestyle. 
Um, so, you know, with this one storage facility, I got to my financial freedom number of one facility. Like it's, it's unbelievable, you know, and, and that, and now it just gives me the latitude and space to like, I can put my foot on the gas pedal, take it off when I want. Like I'm in, you know, Florida this week and, you know, still doing a little working and that sort of stuff. I can just acquire more leverage the technology and other people. Yeah. And, and yeah, frankly, I like, I like the challenges and, and acquiring stuff and, and achieving goals. Yeah, I no, love it, dude. That's, that's amazing. Awesome. And, and two, I want to, you touched on this a little bit and it's such an important aspect to investing or really just under, understanding what it is that you want and where you actually want to go. Because I think so many people get into investing or real estate investing um, and, and they have this idea that there's just one way, you know, I'm just an investor and that's it. Like I just, I invest and it's, it couldn't be more important. Like how you found out with the fix and flips, understanding that business model and what it takes to be successful in each and every aspect of real estate investing. Like, do you want to be more passive? Do you want to be more hands-on? Do you, do you want to be managing projects, you know, and doing these fix and flips, or do you want to do more commercial? And there's so many ways to achieve that end goal of being, you know, financially free, but what is it that you actually want to be doing with your time? How free do you want to be? How hands-on do you want to be? Finding out what kind of investor and knowing and understanding what kind of investor you want to be, I think is something that a lot of people fail to do right in the beginning and end up wasting maybe even years of their life trying to do single family homes only to find out they could have been doing, you know, commercial and it could have been giving them everything they wanted and they could be compounding at a lot faster rate and be a lot further towards that goal that they wanted to achieve. Um, so it's just the importance of that and finding that out like early on, dude, like kudos to you. And, and I would encourage anyone out there, like find that investment vehicle that you need and that's going to fit yeah. whatever lifestyle and end goal that that is what you want. Not just because you read some book. And it was like, oh, well, like that guy made a ton of money. I'm going to go and do that. Yeah. So <laughs> dude, that go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, and it's like, you you know, I don't think I would have had that insight if I didn't take action, right? Like, I think there's a, a, a corridor principle, right? Like, when you go through one door, a lot more doors open up. Like, never did I really think I'd own storage, but going through that, I learned, like, this isn't the lifestyle I want. It doesn't really fit my personality. And, um, yeah, so it's just like, you, you, you got to take the action. And I think for me, too, it's like I had a good financial background or, you know, kind of financial foundation of, like, man, if I don't make a penny when I leave, you know, my wife and I were covered for a year, you know? So it's like, it, it's the, the professional development, the learning, the, the sales, you know, like all of that kind of helps, um, kind of get me to where I am, you yes. know, and, and, uh, it's kind of, it's a building block, you know, it doesn't, doesn't happen overnight for sure. Or at least for me, it didn't, mm -hmm. you know, that is something that has really been hard, I think for me to express and talk about what you just said. Um, there's a building factor to where people get in certain ways and doing it, right? And it's not one thing. And a lot of the stuff I did was wrong. It was totally wrong. And I could be 10 times ahead of where we're at. And, you know, it, it's like, but yet all of those things made me get to where I'm at. Everything from sales, everything, you know, on and on. I mean, all of it, mentors, right? Um, all of, just doesn't end. It all includes in on this building block that you're putting together, failures, everything else. And a lot of people want to discount what they happened behind them because it didn't create success or it didn't have the end result they were looking for. Where people that ha get that end result, if you were wanting to achieve it, they, 
what happened in their past helped them get there, even if it was bad, right? Even if they didn't like it, even if it wasn't. And it, that's a really big part of it is using the tools that you have, good or bad. It, that's not the point. Using the experience, using what you know I didn't like or I did like, and oh, I have a natural tendency to be good at something in this realm. Well, how can I piece it together? Because one of the things, as you know, is success is not an individual thing. So when we're putting together and we're trying to achieve big success, it's all about me finding all the people that are good at certain things and doing things that we can pull resources from, knowledge, everything else to achieve a goal. And it's not solely dependent on you. You have to have a big, big bag of tricks because it can go in lots and lots of different directions. There's not one way to get there, right? There's not one end result. And I love hearing like, so you just bought this facility, I mean, a month ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. November 1st, 2021. So walk us through, how did you find, how did you find this thing and what led you to it? What were, what was the value when you're analyzing this deal? Why, why was it this one? Cause a lot of people starting out, they may know just as much as you do. They may, they know you may have known less than they did, but they still don't pull the trigger and they don't still walk. What separated you from other people that probably knew more than you did to actually take action? Yeah, I guess my personality, I'm kind of a ready fire aim. Like I'll, you know, listen to podcasts, you know, surround yourself with, you know, mastermind or just people that are doing what you want to do and just, you know, success leaves clues. And I'm, you know, it's like, okay, I don't know steps A through Z, but I know, you know, A through D, right? And it's like, all right, I kind of knew back of the napkin, like this property brought in, 24,500 a month, you know, I kind of had the, 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 the formula of like, okay, you know, we can pay, you know, it brings in this much, you know, on a cap rate and not after occupancy, you know, we're in the range of the one, this 1.7 to $2 million. And, uh, so I just kind of knew that the nuts and bolts after talking with the seller and, and, uh, you know, preparation or luck or whatever, however you call it, it was my fifth cold call. And my business partner, um, just kind of uh, driving for dollars, what we call it over Google Earth, just kind of clicked on it. Yep. I called it. It just the stars aligned up um, and, and, and aligned, and we were able to. Wait, know, so get was under this an off-market deal? Yeah. Dude, awesome! <laughs> so man. cool. Now, yeah, now, dude, how big fifth, was it? my fifth yeah. cold call? Fifth <laughs> one. Okay, uh, uh, this is the time that we put in uh, the disclaimer. What is it that um, the results may not be able to? The disclaimer rep- replicated here. Yeah, like, the don't results expect may that. vary. The more <laughs> results may vary, everybody. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> that is yeah. amazing. That is so cool. And you and, found it from Google Earth, you said. Yeah. So yep. like we just kind of set up like, hey, you know, let's search like you know, cause we come from the single family. It's my business partner and I were, we're partners and I'm like, let's, you know, kind of from single family space, it's like distress. So let's find someone that doesn't have a website, you know, doesn't have a gate, just kind of, you know, um, th- and this, this particular property was very well maintained, but just kind of a few of those boxes were checked. We called, you know, he was looking to sell and I'm a kind of sit in your living room type guy. So I drove down there a handful of times to, before we got this under contract built rapport. Um, and then we, yeah, cl- closed. So we put it under contract, um, let's say June of, of 2021, and we just closed it, um, you know, November one. So yeah, it was, you know, luck, but, you know, putting, putting out in the vibrations mm-hmm. in the world, what yep. I wanted to purchase, but it just like checked all the boxes. I had faith that it was going to work and I could find a deal. And if you put in the work, you can, you can get the results and, and I'll be at it, you know, fifth cold call. It's not, re- may not be realistic, but I was, you know, just, 
I was going to get a deal, whether it was the fifth call or, or 5,000, you know, thousands call, you know? So it was like, just, just get it. And, and then just kind of learn as you go, you know, and just was listening to you guys when I was hitting roadblocks along the way and, and yeah. reaching out to other people and yeah, just, just putting it together. And yeah, we, we got it at a, a, a 10 cap and um, so, yeah. That's that amazing. It's so incredible. So like, I'm like sitting here in awe of like, well, now, now the cap rate too, but the cap rate closing period, <laughs> like a yeah. good solid, you know, five month time frame. Like that's amazing. And you did all of this in a market where so many people out here are saying like, oh, I oh, can't, you can't find, find deals. deals. Like there's yeah. nothing, yeah. you know? Everybody's oh, you like, can't find deals. So incredible. Is this like in a market that you already know? Do you live in? Are you close to this? So this one is um, about two and a half hours away. Um, okay. Near, near south of Buffalo. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really, um, don't don't know the market too well, but just kind of through, you know, the basic, you know, doing the self-storage, the radius of, you know, the supply and demand. It's, um, you know, it's it, all the other facilities are 100% full. Um, you know, the, the supply and demand shows that there's a 70,000 to 100,000 square foot shortage of, of storage. And uh, yeah, he, he's 100% full, which, you know, listening to you guys in the, in the one podcast with mm -hmm. Frazier, you know, now I'm doing some of the rate management stuff, learning that that's not necessarily a good thing. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> well, it's but, a good yeah, thing when so, you're buying. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a right. great thing when you're buying. <laughs> That is now right. walk um, me through the physical, like, so the, the, we talked about how you found it. We've talked about some of these other things. Walk me through the physical nature of the facility. Was this a facility that had a lot of capital expenditures that needed to be done? Or was it one that was on par with the rest of the market? Like what, when you looked at it, what were you thinking? What do we have to do? Was it high, high end? Or was it just your normal small town facility? It's a normal small town facility, but it's it's 340 units. Um, it's on 12 and a half acres, so we have room to expand, which we're going to do in the spring. But I mean, Dang. it's like this owner has owned it. The, the old owner owned it for 20 years, had such good pride of ownership. Like it's it's a you know it's got pavement. It's just a beautiful, very meticulously meticulously owned facility. So really, it's just buying it, increasing the rates, you know, implementing a website and just some of our management stuff. And um, yeah, it's not really a big overhaul. So like through learning and going and talking to other folks, it's like, I, I've kind of hit like a triple and I can make it a home run with expanding. And oh, 100%. so it's just unbelievable. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, one of the things you hit on was the demand. You, you talked about a, uh, a lack of, uh, supply on the market. How did you find that supply on the market and how did you calculate and identify that there was a lack of, of supply? Yeah, good question. So I, I just uh, learned that like, you know, the average is like seven, eight square foot, you know, uh, per capita per person. So I did a one, three and five mile radius. And just through that, the metric showed that, you know, there's a, a shortage of storage. And I'm like, all right, we'll shoot, you know, let's test this. Let's call all the other competitors. You know, my, my guy's full, all the other, you know, the bigger facilities are full. So I'm like, well, that, that, <laughs> that kind of, you know, is an indication yeah. to me that there's a, you know, demand and need for storage. And, you know, so even though when we, you know, when we took over, like now we have a waiting list of eight to 10 people. And so, so yeah, that's, um, came true. And, and now we're just in that rate management piece. And since we bought, I mean, we bumped our, all of our rates, $15 implemented, uh, you know, a lock and, you know, kind of move and set up fee mm -hmm. and, uh, requiring tenant protection. So it's like, we're getting, you know, per new transaction, we're getting like 32 dollars extra transaction and then you know every month it would be an extra like 15 to 20 dollars a month and, I mean, and what's, what's your average transaction 
So it's a $32 increase, but what's the average transaction? What do you mean? What do so you like mean in, in regards your, to that? your average unit? You said it's like $32 more, right? But more of what? Is your average 100? So it was like a 32% increase. Is it 200? So it's a 15% increase. Like where was, where are you averaging at that location? Yeah. So I guess to, to give you a little context, like on a, on a, um, a five by 10, the old owner was charging $45. We're now $60, yeah. you know, for the, the street rates. And then we're mm-hmm. charging a $20, um, lock and setup fee. And then, you know, uh, the, the tenant protection, so that's an extra like $4 a month. So that's kind of where I'm getting the number of like the 32 per transaction. Um, but like, I think, I think, you know, when we increase the rates, it'll be like a five to 10% increase across the board. And it might not seem like a big, big number, but when you increase $5 a unit over 340, I mean, that's, that's huge. Uh, cap rate. It's huge. And huge. then from a, an income, it's huge, you know? Oh, absolutely. Well, and so why, why I ask and why I want to talk about this, this is a really important part when we talk about economic occupancy, right? So when we talk about the yield that the facility, where it's at, how much you can get, testing it, right? So this massive increase that you did, it sets a benchmark to where you're filling it up that you can raise the other people up. So as you go and you've tested that benchmark, you still have waiting lists, everything else. Now you can see the spread of all the units and then you can be as aggressive as you want or not want on those to lift it up to the street rate. And you know that you're getting it. So this economic occupancy and the difference between um, what you can't, what is being charged and what you can be or what you can charge, now it's known. So like I, I talk a lot about the money on the table. Well, when you're analyzing a storage facility, you're trying to find that spread, right? But now you're doing it. So you're, you're saying that you've basically increased revenue on these units by 50%, right? And n- people still are waiting and lined up and you're still totally full. So that means that over all your facility, you increased that ability by 50%. In revenue. Now, it may take you, let's say, two years to get there. Two years to increase 50% on gross revenue? That's a home run. It doesn't matter who you are. Right. Like, you know, that right. it's that's a big deal. You talk about like $30 or $5 here, everything else like that. But when you look at it on the gross revenue, total units, the spread from what you bought it for to what you're doing to your cash flow, because that increase is straight to your pocket. Yeah. So unbelievable. it's unbelievable in your return on your money. And then when you start talking about like cap rates and what that means, then it starts to blow your mind because you're, you have, and let me ask you this real quick before I get into this, you have debt on the property. Yeah. How yep. much do you so put we, down? We, we bought it. So we bought it. So long story short, we, we were going to go SBA bank kind of blend, but uh, we couldn't do like real property allocation to help save on some of the taxes. So what we did is we we bought it with cash, um, and then we had like a pre-approval. So we're in the process of refinancing now with uh, bank debt. So eighty percent, you know, bank debt, twenty percent us. Okay. Um, you know, at a ten-year fix, twenty-five-year yep. am. So you put you're you're essentially going to have twenty percent into this thing, and increase gross revenue by fifty percent. The amount that you have in it now, your actual investment, you'll have tripled or quadrupled that in like a year, well, year and a half. Yeah, and the plan is to build that, you know, at least another thirty to forty thousand square feet. But we're going to kind of do it in phases. Yes. And then, in a perfect world, hopefully, in a few years, based on the income, we can essentially burn a deal and pull all capital out, and you know, have you know, infinite cash on cash return. You know, so just 
do it that way. So in the perfect world, that's what, that's what we're planning to do. So we'll, in the spring, we're going to build two, uh, you know, 30 by 150 buildings to kind of test our theory and kind of see what the fill up rate is and then go forward if it makes sense to build more. Now, um, so this is a really important point in a strategy that obviously we love. We talk about all the time on it, you know, and you, you mentioned like the bird strategy for bigger pines, right? You know, and we call it in commercial, we have the bird strategy, which is you buy, increase revenue, um, reduce risk, and then do it again. And, and this is the thing that like a lot of people don't understand on commercial properties. Let's say that you go and you expand it by 30,000 square feet. You're refinancing it. It's worth whatever, 3 million now. You take all your money out plus profit. You just reduced risk by taking your investment out. Now it's free and clear and you're on that mm -hmm. infinite returns. But also you have a chance to restructure that debt into a non-recourse loan. So then you also wipe away any liability on the uh, debt of the asset. You are no longer liable. So what you did is you now have infinite returns, but you also dramatically almost wiped away the risk associated with those returns. Um, it is, it's hard for me to express to people the power financially of that. Um, it is, it shoots you skyrockets uh, ahead. And a lot of people don't understand that about real estate. When they just think of average returns or cash on cash returns that they're looking for, they're not putting it all into place. And that's, we're not even talking about now, are you going to do a cost segregation for your uh, depreciation yeah, or look, taxes? Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, you, you'll probably wipe away your earnings for a few years. Well, and that, like, that, that's what's so cool about it is you can run this like a business and tinker. You know, I think I heard mm -hmm. this through you guys and then you get the benefits of real estate, right? Cause yep, so we can depreciate. Exactly. So we're, we're going to depreciate the 1.2 over the 39 years or whatever. And then, then the other 800, you know, over 15 years. So it's like, you know, we should be able to depreciate dang near close to, you know, so we're paying close to zero in taxes. Exactly. You know, and that's, so, so that income is then, you know, like we should be able to make a hundred grand free and clear, you know, and then that, that hundred probably becomes more like 120 or 130 because you're not paying any taxes, taxes. on it, you know? hundred percent. This is real money. So, and your refinance too, when you get it, that's all for free. So if you pull out, you know, let's say you have 20% in, which what, what what's the total amount of that 20%? I, I think it'll be... 400, 400? perfect. So let's say it's 400,000, you expand it, you fill it up right, you refinance and you're able to take 800,000 out. Um, well, you're taking 800,000 out tax-free. So right. if you made $800,000 in income, you're gonna lose 400,000 of it. You're gonna lose right. $400,000. So that means you literally made an extra $400,000 on your money. So what people don't understand is we make money a lot of ways in real estate. We've talked about cash flow, right? You talk about depreciation. We talk about increasing revenues, that gross income, which then it's an increase in cash flow event, but it also is an increase in equity event, which equity is real. Banks actually look at that. People look at that. That's a real thing. And then you pull out equity and you get the equity that you realize tax-free. And then from there, you get infinite cash flows, which are still tax deductible. Um, I mean, this one deal literally could set you for life. Like, it, I mean, right. It, yeah. I mean, it's, it's life changing. I mean, like I think day one, conservatively, we have like a half a million dollars in equity, probably yeah. conservatively. And it's like, 
how many deals of that, you know, single family. And I, I think single family has a place and all that. Yes. Like if it, for me, it just, the, the scalability wasn't there, but this one deal is life changing and, you know, we'll, we'll change our lives, you know, forever. And it's like, and I can continue to build on it. And it's like, yeah, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, to be honest, I didn't really think it was possible until you close on it. And it's like the money hits your account. It's like, Oh my God, this is, this is unbelievable. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we dude, we, and that's something I think a lot of people getting started specifically, it's really hard to understand, really hard to understand. I've got to save up how much money I got to do, how much work I look at the returns and I'm like, I'm only going to make this much returns. So we, we, originally I actually thought real estate was a horrible investment. I didn't like it. I, I thought like, you people are all crazy. You're going to save up how much money and you're going to get what back like 12% return. That's how I looked at it. And I'm like, that's a lot of work for not very much money in the back. Well, if I start up businesses or if I do all this other stuff, which I did, and none of them performed even remotely close financially once you included all of these things. I mean, it, it was when you take it in total, the performance of it was mind boggling. I mean, we had assets that we built for 7 million, which were literally selling for in four years for over 30. And it's like, yeah. you're talking... You turn two million into twenty in four years? It's insane. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's just it's hard to even conceptualize when you're starting out. And then after right. you've done it, like you're seeing now, oh, I moved up these rate increases. I do this, I do that, right? All of a sudden you're going, Oh, I can see that equity turn. And like you said, the cash hits your bank account, and then you're going, I get this now. And then you can take that process. So when you look at your next facility. I'm assuming you're going to keep growing, expanding. So when you look at your next one now, you're going to be able to identify. When I did this, I did this, I hit the bank. It, your, your knowledge, which I, I talk about a lot, like static and dynamic knowledge. Everyone listening to this, right? This is what I would consider static knowledge. You're actually learning. It's important. This podcast is very important because it's showing you things that you may not have known existed. But dynamic knowledge is actionable knowledge, meaning that it's knowledge that can be put into place and used in all sorts of different kinds of circumstances and different ways. So you took your static knowledge from the podcast and everywhere else that you're reading books on and on and on, you turn that into dynamic knowledge. And now, how different is it now that you own it compared to when you started literally two months ago? Like, what is your, yeah, your understanding well, of it and everything? Well, it's like now I know kind of all this, or uh, I think I know all the steps, but I, there's, there's stuff I'm going to learn and continue to grow, but it's like, now I know I can just, it's kind of a plug and play, you know, like mm -hmm. it's very, you can systematize it, right? It's like, I can take this and systematize it to another facility. And, you know, like right now, my business partner and I were, we're answering the phones, just learning the business yes. and just kind of doing all, you know, like doing the cleanouts and just learning the business. So then we can then, Hey, we want to outsource this. And because now that we're doing this, it's like, I, my foot is off the gas pedal a lot, like from like the marketing standpoint and outreach. So it's like, that's where my, my time and, and best use is, is doing that to acquire more deals. And, but yeah, I think it's very valuable to, for me anyways, to learn the business. And, and, and what learn, do you feel about shoot. risk? So like I, a lot of people, they're nervous about it, everything else like that. Were you nervous doing it? And how, what is your thoughts about doing the deal prior to after you've completed it? Were there things that you were worried about that didn't even come true? Or how did that all kind of how mentally as you walked through it? Yeah, the, 
like if you were to tell me three years ago, I'd buy a $2 million property, I'd say you're out of your mind crazy. That was just kind of like out of the realm of my possibilities or what I thought was possible. Um, but I think I was, I had the nerves, but I just was surrounding myself with people like you, podcasts, all that. And I just was checking it with everyone. And they're like, yeah, this is a great deal. And then like, even it was nice when I, we were going through the bank financing part because they're kind of like another set of eyes, like they're not going to loan or they, they might loan on bad, a bad yeah. loan, but they're like, no, this checks the boxes. We want this opportunity. So once that kind of was kind of ticked the boxes or however you want to say it, I was like, okay, I, I think this is a good deal. It's like, I, I ran the numbers. I did the metrics. It's like, this is a good deal. I just got to take a leap of faith and I'm not the first person to, to do this. And um, yeah, so far it, it's so good. And yeah, it's just like now it's, it's opened up a, the possibilities of really it's endless from a, you know, okay. financing standpoint of what we want to buy. And what you said is really important right there. And I really want to make sure everyone hears and listens to this. You said you were walking through and it was checking boxes and you were looking at, meaning there's a process. So what a lot of people don't realize is when we do real estate deals right now, a huge portion of this is mechanical, meaning we're only seeing certain deals that go through all these boxes, checks all these things and go right up to the top. It's not necessarily an emotional decision, even though you can never take emotions out of it. We want to check our guts, right? But there's just, we have checks and we have boxes. We have clear indicators of things that we know make it successful and ones that don't. Dangers, things that we need to look at. We ask other people, like you said, are we missing anything here, right? If not, okay, we're doing the deal. Like, what's there to make? Like, and the creating a system that is more mechanical than anything in investing works really well. It doesn't work really well in a lot of places and a lot of things, even in the business world. But when you're dealing with investing, being more mechanical than anything is actually better because your emotions, both fear and greed kick in. So how you had that mechanical, let's do it. Now it's also important to make sure you have the mechanical on, let's not do it. Right. So it's on both sides. When I talk to real estate investors, your emotions, when you buy, and as you know, you get the butterflies, you're nervous, right? Our first deal that we did, that was a really big deal. I was just like, I was like, really like nervous about it. Like I was like, holy cow, I can't believe we're doing this. Right. And I'm, am I stupid or whatnot? Well, it met our boxes. So my emotions, even though I'm scared, even though I'm nervous, even though there's something in the back of my brain saying, you don't know everything, which was true right? That voice in the back of my head, a hundred percent true. He's like, I'm like, you're right. You don't got to keep reminding me I'm an <laughs> idiot. Right. And so he's like, you shouldn't be doing this, or this is for other people or, and as you just look back, nope, it checks all the boxes. It did what it was supposed to. And then we did the deal and sure enough, it worked out perfect. Now on the other side, whenever I've got greedy and said, this business deal doesn't check all the boxes, but I want to enter into this market. I want to do something total disaster always failed. Right. And it's like this art of, like you said, going into it, just doing it, saying yes, that leap of faith that you take because your plan is, is there's an art to it, to doing it. And there's also an art to saying, no, this isn't a deal. I want to be in this market. I love this part about it. I can justify all the things that I want to justify, but it doesn't make sense. You also have to walk away. I think that just makes it easier. I think it makes it easier. It increases your success rate. It's easier to communicate with investors. And I, like, this is what we do, right? And let's just do it. I, You don't want to be stand, spending your nights like, oh, should I do the deal? Should I not do the deal? I mean, well, what does your system say? Simplify mm -hmm. it. 
Right. Now, yeah. when you, you're moving back to the bank, so you're going back to the bank to get financing. Uh, you, remind me again, those, those, the financing that you talked about, you know, 15-year, and how, how did you decide on the, the loan terms? And like, what are your thoughts on that? Walk us through that when you were trying to get a bank loan and debt, and what, what, what were you thinking when you tried to construct it? Yeah, so we we wanted to try to lock in the, the interest rate as long as possible. So we were able to lock in the, well, we're still trying to, you know, interest rates are rising. So we're trying to lock in the rate now, but, um, you know, it should be in that, that high threes, low fours. So locking in a rate for 10 years, we're able to amortize it over, uh, you know, 25 years. Um, yeah, we just, you know, uh, we're, you know, kind of vetted a few banks. And this was just a local bank that we had already built up a relationship with. We had a yep. line of credit. You know, we had a few mortgages on our other, you know, rentals and that sort of stuff. So we kind of had a track record. It was just, they made it very simple and easy for us to, to go through the process. Albeit the SBA had their rules that kind of, they wouldn't budge on. So we kind of had to circumvent it and do it a little different in regards to kind of get rid of the SBA and just going, you know, bank financing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, a good learning process. A lot of, uh, you know, just making some fundamental mistakes just with like the SBA, not, not realizing we can, can't real property allocate what that would look like, you know, from a taxation standpoint, cause we're in New York, this property is assessed at 850,000. We're buying it for 2 million. If we didn't real property allocate, you know, that potentially could you know, double our taxes and yeah. go from 25,000 to 50,000. So, um, but, uh, we, you know, through that process, we're leaning on our, our lawyers, you know, and just mm -hmm. the bank and just having a good team of people um, that could guide us in our direction for some of our weak, weak points. I love it. Did you get any interest only or um, did you get any breaks? So you're only paying interest for a first couple of years or is it just straight, normal interest principal right out of the gate? Yep. Yeah. It's a straight, normal pr principal and interest right out of the gate. Okay. And then we have, um, uh, like a, we're going to do take out a, a loan for the, the buildings that we're, we're building in the spring. And yes. that'll just be like, I think it's interest only for like, I think six months or something like that until we oh, get great. stabilized yep. and then they'll, they'll match it with the, I think it's a year actually it's a, interest only for a year and then it'll kick into principal and interest and, and match it with the rest of the loan. Do you have any prepayment penalties on those loans? Yeah. Yeah. There is, uh, some prepayment penalties. I don't know exactly what that, you know, the right now what they are, yeah. but there are some prepayment penalties. Um, but if we, if we refinance with them, they would, you know, they would, uh, you know, forgive those. So yep. it wouldn't be perfect. Yeah. Good. So, um, and two, you, you should kind of look and see lots of times when we have our loans that have interest only loans, which there's two parts of this. Um, your, your way that you did it is actually the same way that we still do things. So when we, are down and we bought a bunch in Oklahoma City and some other places, right? We're working with the local bank down the road. They tend to give us better rates. They're more favorable. We're in meeting with them. They understand that place. Um, so that I think that strategy is excellent and everybody should use it. Building up some kind of credit with some local, you know, all of that's super important. Um, and then when you construct the, the loan, there's a few things that, you know, I think we've learned over time is you kind of take what you can get, right? Of course, we all know that. Um, and some banks are more willing to waive prepayment penalties, okay? Or not give them, or like you did, the waiving if you, you refinance with us and everything. The only reason why I think that's important, the more that we've gone along, the more important that's become. Because uh, velocity of money when you're starting out has a big effect. And we were one of the first, 
I think we are actually the first loan in the entire Northwest to go onto the CMBS market after the Great Recession. And that's a non-recourse loan that's traded on the bond market. And we collateralized it. The bank that we were with collateralized it. And this is how most loans actually trade in, in real estate or through insurance or, or CMBS types loans in the bond market. Now, when we did this, though, the because we were the first one, our options weren't great. So prepayment penalties were super high, high interest rates. Um, but at the time, we're just like, hey, we're going to take whatever we can get, Right. Uh, and we took it. And, you know, I thought there's no, first of all, there was two things in my head that I just totally got wrong. For, I said, there is not a chance ever we are going to see under four and a half or 5% interest rates. <laughs> like that's never going to happen. <laughs> right. And so that was totally wrong. Uh, and second of all, I totally didn't understand the power of real estate. Like I was talking about before, I didn't get it. So I'm like, well, why would we ever want to refinance it in eight to 10 years anyway? We have no reason we're going to want to do that. So we were totally okay with these huge prepayment penalties. Four years later, right. we're sitting going, there's $4 million in equity on that one building sitting there that we could use, but we can't get to it. The prepayment penalties, to give you any idea, were $350,000. So it yeah. was like, we couldn't touch it. So now I have four facilities that have been locked up for eight years of in which all of them have over $15 million in equity that we haven't been able to access. So uh -huh. we'll be able to next year. It's going to be a good year. But um, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's interesting. Some of those things that I didn't think about when I was originally doing it, or I totally didn't. And it, what you're talking about here, I like, first of all, exactly how you did it. You went with the bank. It's I'm assuming it's recourse, right? So yeah, it's mm -hmm. recourse loan. Obviously um, you are paying down, um, the debt, which starting out interest only payments, you could do it. That's fine. Everything else. My first ones, I never did it. And I'm really happy that I didn't. I wanted to, because it, it created a, um, almost like a, a, it just made it so that I made sure that the property being new could always pay no matter what the principal and the interest rate. And I wasn't looking at it as if that interest rate was the only thing and never got into trouble. So I actually really liked that you did that too. Um, when your next loan's coming up and everything, I would just look at making sure how that refinance structure will work. I just don't want you to get trapped in a position like I did. Because when you look at having that much equity locked up on that you can't attach, like think about what that cost me. Not as far as the money right. sitting there, but how many facilities I mm -hmm. could have bought five years ago and what five years ago, all those facilities would be worth today. Yeah. I can't calculable. Right. I yeah. can't think about it. I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> so the, the point is say. just trying to say, you know, don't look at it. And, and right now though, too, you're in a really good spot as far as timing goes, because it, it's a balancing act. A lot of people are like, well, I wish I would have been buying stuff when during the great recession and stuff like when you did, well, you say that, but first of all, <laughs> we didn't have access to money. Our terms, to say they were bad, were horrific. It was really hard to get financing. It was really hard to get sellers on anything reasonable because values had dropped so low, their cost was higher than that. So it's we didn't just get things penny on the dollars. In fact, lots of stuff we paid at the time, we were overpaying. They weren't worth what we were buying them for. It didn't matter. That's what the loan was. They couldn't get out from it underneath. So it... Every time you're doing there's trade-offs right now, you can pick up properties, you can get great financing, and people want to sell. 
they do. I know a lot of people are saying it's fine, hard to find deals, right? Well, you can find properties to buy, but you're right. Finding a good deal is a different story. So there's just these ebbs and flows of the economy and your strategy needs to adjust it. But I love what we just heard about your story. This is the perfect execution. And we talked about this in the first thing on the top market. You found an incredible deal. You have great financing. You only put 20% down, right? You can get interest only on an expansion room, which you didn't pay for. You bought it at a 10 cap and your effective gross revenue, right? Your economic uh, revenue is already up basically 40 plus percent that you can achieve in the next two years. This is textbook what you want to do. Like it just, and I love this story because of it. You've off market deal. You called like you just can't get more textbook than this. Mm-hmm. Starting out, uh, you really did awesome, man. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. And it's and to your point, like and just through listening, it's like the the purchase price cap rate really doesn't matter because like when you increase the value of the asset, then it you, know, you could overpay overpay yep. and then increase the price, and it's like then it's like man, this is a sweet deal. So. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, when we look yeah, at great when we deal. look at things, we don't look at cap rates. So we look at the price and all all we're doing is we're looking at all, all the decision making around should we do a deal or not? It, nothing to do with cap rates. So we just um were closing on two more deals and get a move into funding everything. Both deals. I have no idea what the cap rate is on it. I don't know what our, when we got yeah, our purchase price care. with that. It just doesn't matter. All I look at is internal rate right. of return, cash on cash, right? under when we're running it. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to make off my money when we're running it? And moving to that opened up all sorts of deals that all of a sudden we were doing home run after home run. But if you looked at it at the purchase time, it didn't look like a home run. And that's a hard gap. That's a hard gap to realize, right? When you're starting out. And I think you're already talking about what you said. Now that you've seen the improvement, you're like, oh, geez, I don't care what the cap rate is when I buy it because <laughs> exactly. you know right. how that works. And that's that's an it's it's a hard lesson to grasp, I think, unless you've done it. Right. Yeah, because for me, I'm like, oh, man, can I raise the rents? You know, it's 100% full, you know, so you're just, you're going through these things, but you just realize that, you know, that's kind of limiting beliefs, right? And, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, we need to, we need to do like a, we need to coin Frazier's approach. We need to do like the Frazier method, like just raise them. <laughs> Just raise them. Just raise yeah. them. As just raise them. See, yep. what, see what happens. Just go for dude, it. Dude, that podcast was so aw- like timely when I listened to that. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like putting words to my thoughts and like <laughs> kind of my fears. I'm like, oh my God. This is, I'm not the only one that thinks that everyone's yeah. going to move out or, you know, and you can yeah. raise rents. And I'm just like, wow, that was, yeah, it was, it was great. You know, and I now follow him on, on social media. And yeah. what he does is, that's yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I, I love Frazier. It's so funny. It, it, I guess you heard of the podcast too. It, we knew each other when he was young. I was like his in in his right. church. <laughs> and it's crazy. Then storage brings all of us together, you know, at the end. But it's, it's I love these stories. I love you and Frazier and hearing about all these things. Because I'm the things that people are dealing with when you started out, like that I remember dealing with, and you're talking about raising rents and people will move out and everything. Those are the same fears that I'm buying storage facilities from people that have owned storage for decades. And you're going, you never overcame right. that. And now that's all my opportunity. And that's everything right. they're leaving on the table. And it's, I remember, we. I can remember when we first thought that we would raise it 12%. And we had no idea. We were just making crap up. We're like, yeah. what if we raised it 12%? Oh my gosh, we can't do that. The, the asset will fail. We didn't know. 
We're like, you know, it was just yeah. like, we're going to destroy our business. Let's let, no, let's take it back down to nine. Let's take it back down to nine. Right. And then, you know, 10 years later, we're like, nah, just up at 120%. We'll see who sticks around. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it just, it gets rid of those limiting beliefs and fears and those not recognizing what the marketplace is doing and you can identify it there. So when we talk about that money on the table, like I tell people, we don't guess this is known measurable things that we're taking off. It's not an emotion. It comes back to think I'm not emotional about rate increases at all. It's not something that I'm like, will people move out anymore? No. I'm like, what do the numbers say? If the numbers say it, you do it. It doesn't matter. Every person gets a rate increase every single year, and it's judged by the individual market. It's judged by the individual unit, where that unit's placed. It has nothing to do with how we feel anymore. And it used that's all how right. it used to be. Well, let's raise all prices up 6% and see if we can get away with it, right? We don't even have those discussions anymore because it doesn't matter. Right. Well, and it's like you can, you know, when you put – kind of the take the emotion out of it, you put the pen to paper. It's like, even if you raise prices five, 10%, you know, or whatever the price is, and then you even lose 20% of the people, you're, you're still, still ahead better of the off. game. Mm -hmm. You have less customers, you have, then you have inventory. You have inventory you, you can so sell at like, new higher rates, 100%. Like it, it's, right. we, we talk, talk about all the time, right? You never want to be 100% full. That is a clear sign that you're right. screwing up. When we see our facilities are 100% full, we're like, geez, what? raise them up higher, whatever our machine told us, we got to put them up higher, right? It's because if it's 100% full, I don't have anything to sell. Self-storage right. is a business and it acts more like retail. Right. We have customers coming in. I got to have products to sell. You would never have a Walmart sitting open and say, sorry, we've sold all our products, right? Or, you know, this. No, right. you want product to be turning over and you want it to, to churn. It's the lifetime value of the customer, meaning how long they stay versus what they charge. This is that balancing act that you're working on. So what is the overall demand and the elasticity of the customers at a certain price point? And you only know that as you're raising rents and testing that market. And the vast majority of storage facilities in the United States easily 80 plus percent are not at the right price. They are severely yeah. below and they're not doing anything to even test it to know. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, like, like last week we rented something to uh, someone moving from Texas, like they had to move and they're moving into our area. Everyone else was hundred percent full. We just happened to have one that, that showed up and he's paying, you know, our, our $15 higher street rates and whatever. And he, they didn't bat an eye. Don't right? care. They don't know any different. They, yeah. they need the storage. They're moving and, you know, so. Well, and this is something that I always thought was weird when we were having this debate, because this used to be a much bigger debate. So like when we were first in and trying to do aggressive rates, there was a huge percentage of the industry. It's like, why would you do that? Like you don't do that. And when, when I looked at it, there, there was this theme, like you're not being fair to customers or whatnot. And I go, so the guy that's moving from Texas that has no units available, that's willing to pay any price because to him, the demand is so high. How are we not being fair to him if we keep prices so cheap that nobody, he can't get a unit? We're not, you're not being fair to the marketplace, right? That's not how it's actually working. It's fair based upon the value that the individual needs and derives it for. We're here to serve customers. We're here to serve their needs at the price points in which they find it valuable at. So if I have 600 units and there's 800 people that are trying to get into my facility that, that would pay double the price that I currently have, the 600 people I need to raise to that 800 mark to allow for people to get in, to change that value in the marketplace for the value that is actually there, right? And that's a really important piece that is just really catching on in the last five years into self-storage. 
Yeah. And, and frankly, I think the typically not always, but like I'm, we're finding that the lower end uh, pricing customers are more of your headache customers, right? So if 100%. you raise the price, not that you want to get rid of them, but like, no. you know, those are the people that in our facility are paying cash or won't, won't pay yeah. online. So it's like the, they're more management intensive for us, you know, not oh, that we want to kick more. them up. It's like, hey, here, here, here's what we provide. Here's what the price is. And if it's not a good fit or good match, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, might not be a good match for you anymore. Yeah. The lowest paying tenants consume 90% of uh, your work at a storage facility. They always do. So the expense ratio allocated to per door per tenant is not the same. So your margin on a higher paying tenant in general tends to be much bigger because your acquisition cost is lower. They take care of things. They don't utilize your business. They're not causing problems. You're not sending to collections. You're not trying to get money all the time. So all of a sudden they're much more profitable and better for the business. And how I look at it too is, I'm not trying to be fair to one customer. I'm trying to be fair to all my customers. So you don't get to be at half the price that Bob is coming in because you think that's unfair for you to get the price raised. But really, it's just about you. It's unfair to Bob right. because you're getting this massive discount, right? And it's unfair to Bob if you don't pay your bill. It's unfair to Bob if you're trashing the facility he's paying for. So I'm not just looking out for you. I have to look out for the whole entire community that is tenants within my storage facility. We charge you and you pay. If you don't, we're kicking you out. The reason being is all the other people are paying and they get the right, right. to be there because we've told them that they would do it. If I don't allow that for you, it's not that I'm being fair or unfair. I'm screwing everybody else. I'm holding them right. accountable to something that you don't have to be. And that's really hard to get across to a lot of people that own storage facilities, tenants, because they're like, I just want to be a nice guy. And I'm like, well, right. you're being a nice guy to one person and you're being a dick to everybody else. So think about <laughs> it that way. If you have 500 yeah. units, you appeased one person and 499 other people, you just screwed. And I'm like, when you change that aspect, you're like, holy crap, you're right. It's like hold tenants accountable. Somebody is there. They're paying for these services. They're paying you to make sure that everything is working, is going right. Everybody's being accountable. So the moment you stop, you're hurting your entire customer base and everything else. And, and it's this idea, once again, I think just looking at it a business, right? It's right. these are your customers. What are they paying for? Demand is different from everybody. This what you did for that guy coming in from Texas, right? Like you said, cost wasn't, but you, you gave him a deal compared to the demand that he had. I don't even know what you charged him, but it was a deal to what he was willing to pay for that unit. I guarantee you that, right? He is right. so happy. You served him in a time of absolute need, right? And it's, uh, when you look at raising rates, when you're looking at tenants, obviously people can go too far and obviously people can know, but what we're talking about is that spread between economic occupancy, right? And people, what are actually paying. And that's one of the biggest. So when you bought this facility, was there a big spread? Like, did you have like 10 by tens that some people were paying 20 other people, 60, or was it pretty standardized? So he had some that were below kind of his, the, the $45 mark. But what was awesome is I, I built such a good relationship with the seller. I'm like, Hey Tom, you know, you're, you're $10 below every unit to your, our biggest competitor. She's like, you want me to raise the rates like a month before he closed? So he raised all the rates, $10 or 340 units. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So, so awesome. You know, it was like, uh, unbelievable, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, and he's that's like, amazing. Yeah, I should have been doing this all along. You know, like I didn't have anyone, you know, like there are a few people that are mad, but everyone stayed, you know? So it was just, 
yeah, it was awesome. And, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and, it, 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 and to the point with like adding, you know, increasing the rents, like we're going to increase rents a little more, you know, to kind of keep that rate management. But we'll be able to that now fence in the entire property, put security yes. cameras, you know what I mean? Once so again, we're providing more value. You're providing more value to your customers. You're increasing their value, and so, which is real and which is tangible. And two, like, I don't want to be the storage for everybody. That's not me. I know who my customer is. Like we, we did, um, the first, we were so nerdy. So, uh, when we were first setting up the company, everything, we created the Rogers experience. We had all our managers walk through it, everything else like that. And I go, the problem is we are spending money on a facility. We're reinvesting and everything to attract Roger. Yet you keep trying to get us to give discounts and everything to Bob. I'm not trying to attract Bob. I'm trying to attract <laughs> Roger. And every time you sell to a Bob, I can't attract a Roger. You're not doing the right market placement. So there's how many people need a storage unit? Thousands. We have 400. And these 400 are for this type of tenant. They're okay paying higher amount and we're going to provide higher, better services for it. You can't bring in Bob when we're trying to provide service to a Roger, right? And it's this product market fit. It's a business. And you got to look at it like that. One of the biggest things that we do is, and I tell people, come in, we're kicking out all the bobs because the new asset owner, which is us, we are changing things and we do not rent to bobs. We rent to Rogers. So a lot of bobs are going to leave and you're going to say, look what you did. All these tenants are leaving. I say, that's the point because we need <laughs> Rogers to come in. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got to look at it that way. It's like, who are you trying to attract? Who are you trying trying to be and it, and it shouldn't be for everybody 100 percent. Yeah. well said man that's awesome yeah. so now what's your next steps talk to us you're going you got expansion room are you going immediately out to try to find a uh storage facility a new one yeah yeah so we're we're doing the expansion so my, i think my business partner is going to focus in on kind of the you know project management of that getting that to the finish line um, and it's, it's funny, like when we closed on this, you know, it's a smaller town. So they got word that we bought it and there's a guy, there's a storage owner that owns, I think like 60 or 70,000 square feet, like three or four facilities that wants to sell. So I'm going to really press on that hard. Um, and then we could have potentially, you know, a, a good kind of economies of scale of, of storage in the area. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to really, my, I guess my zone of genius is I like, like to, to network and mark and try to get more deals and build rapport. So that's, I'm going to get back on that front to try to build more, um, you know, pipeline of deals and in a perfect world, we'd love to get, um, you know, cause we, I want to kind of build a, a business by lifestyle. Right. So like my wife and I and business partner really like Colorado. Yeah. So we'd love to get a nice facility out in Colorado. Yeah. We find ourselves in Florida a bunch. So I'd love to, love to get a few facilities kind of in those areas mm -hmm. and then, you know, kind of lifestyle by design, but yeah, it's going to go back on the acquisition side for sure. in uh, 2022. Yeah. Awesome, man. That's Such a amazing. great story. Now, you know, we could talk about this all day, but where can people go to find you? Where, you know, they want to follow you along your journey and everything. Where should people go? Yeah, uh, Instagram is probably the best. I, I document with stories and, and a little bit of the Frazier model. I kind of tell what I do and, and post some videos. So it's uh, Chris Flips Rock, R-O-C, uh, at Instagram. And yeah, give me a follow. I'd love to help out or add any value I can. Perfect. That sounds great. We'll put that in the show notes and uh, everybody go give him a follow. Keep up with all this awesome work. And, uh, dude, just super, super commendable what you got going on, everything you're doing. You're just knocking it out of the park, man. It's it's sweet to see. Yeah, this is so cool. It'll be in the show notes. And, you know, 
I can't wait. See, one of the best things that I love about these interviews, particularly with um, guys that have started, because, you know, we've interviewed people that have hundreds of millions and everything else like that, which is great. And there's a lot of value that we pull out of that. And it's and not. But when we talk with you, we get to talk about so much more details and in-depth of the actual project. But also it provides me and Connor the opportunity to talk to you again in eight, nine months mm -hmm. and say, now, where are you at? Right now, what have you done? So we look forward to that. No pressure. You go kill it. Document it. <laughs> Everybody follow him on Instagram and uh, we'll have you back on again. Thanks, man.